Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, August 10th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On this week's financial show, we're going to go into the latest earnings reports from Berkshire Hathaway and Markel Insurance. We're going to talk about negative interest rates and investing. We've also got a few tips for how investors can approach and deal with stressful times like these we're witnessing now with the pandemic. But joining me this week, I've got a full squad here with Jason Hall and Dan Kaplinger. Guys, how is everything going? I have to I have to say I've never been referred to as part of a squad. That's pretty exciting. I'm, hey, I'm, man. I'm pretty happy about that. Full squad, full strength here. Love it. Yeah. Doing great here, JMO. How are you? Oh, doing well. Doing well. Trying to trying to beat the heat here in Virginia. I think that we I've just noticed the past couple of days I walk outside early in the morning and I can smell fall. Small it, it, it just little small changes in the air, but it's coming. And I and I'm kind of happy about that. It's still like 90 plus degrees up here. I'm, Ready to call it a summer. It's gonna be it's gonna be ninety all week here in Southern California. So we're we're going the other way. We're going oh, the yeah. other way, I guess. Well, well, I Jason, I was down in Georgia um a few weeks, a couple of weeks back. I was down in Georgia, went down there to go play golf with my dad. And Dan, Dan Kaplinger, given... you may not know, but uh, Jason Moser's dad pra- is he still practicing? Is yeah, he... yeah, he is. He's, believe it or he's not, a he physician is. at the hospital I was born at in Moultrie, Georgia. But yeah, the golf course there is like right across the street from the hospital. So, you know, Moultrie, Georgia, just small town living life at its finest. And uh, got to go down there for a few days, hang out and unplug. But the, the heat, oh my God, the heat. It was 95 degrees in the shade, but that was all right. I'd, I'd rather play golf in the heat than the cold. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, guys, let's jump into uh, a couple of stories here that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to be very interested in. A couple of companies that many of our listeners and our members follow. And we'll, we'll start here with Berkshire Hathaway. And, and Dan, I'll, I'll jump to you first here because, you know, Berkshire Hathaway earnings came out over the weekend. I mean, it, I mean, it was not a bad quarter by any means. I mean, I think we saw more or less what we expected operating profits fell 10% for the quarter. I mean, obviously, um, no company is immune to the economic uh, economic turmoil that, that, that uh, we're all facing right now during the pandemic. But it does seem like um, it does seem like certainly Berkshire Hathaway, given its size, is, is a bit better prepared to deal with times like these. But they bought back a lot of stock during the quarter as well, didn't they? They did. Yeah, that's been the big headline is they have finally upped their buybacks spent more than $5 billion uh, during the quarter, which is a big boost from the first quarter. There were a lot of folks that were saying, hey, you know, what What are you doing, Warren? You're not buying the stock back in February. <laughs> You're not buying it back in March. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I seriously doubt that Buffett like took that to heart and that this is the answer to it. <laughs> what I'm guessing instead is, you know, if you watch the annual meeting, and, and I did, and it was a little bit disquieting you know, he, he sort of did his usual, you know, optimistic on America deal, but there was sort of a downbeat tone to it. And you could kind of pick up that maybe there was a little bit of concern, especially on the insurance side, as far as like well, how much liability there might be as a result of COVID-19 and keeping some of those reserves available rather than buying back stock at, you know, huge bargain prices, keeping some of that money. It made some shareholders wonder, hey, you know, 
Is he keeping that money for a reason? Are there going to be claims to pay out? Is there going to be like actual, you know, serious underwriting losses that we're going to be paying attention to? And the message I take from at least a, a small boost in buyback uh, this quarter is that some of that systemic risk, Berkshire seems to be getting a handle on it. You're starting to see some improved conditions in the insurance and reinsurance markets, stronger premiums, uh, bodes well for the future. So I'm kind of excited about it. I think that, you know, there's some people that are just excited, hey, buyback means higher stock price. But I think it actually says more about the safety and security of Berkshire's insurance business going forward. And so, yeah, I see it as a potential beginning of a trend we could see more buybacks in the future, especially if the stock price stays relatively attractive like it's been lately. Yeah. And, you know, Jason, I, the one thing we saw with Berkshire Hathaway over the past couple of years, at least, is, you know, Charlie and Warren were, they're always very good about having a process, right? Having the checklist. You got to, yeah, there's, there's a standard. You got, you got to, you got to check these boxes off before you do something. And they had that set with buybacks. And I think it was 1.2 times book value was sort of the, that was, that was the floor there. Um, and, and that's all fine. I mean, buybacks, yeah, Dan, you're right. Fewer shares in theory should result in a higher share price down the road. By the same token, and I'm not a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder here, but it really does feel like, it really does feel like they're missing out on an opportunity perhaps here to pay a dividend and maybe light a fire under a new under a new shareholder base with this business right it does feel like it's gotten a little bit stale the story there do you feel i mean we've been talking a lot about a dividend here what are the chances of this company paying a dividend anytime soon uh, I, I'd say they're still incredibly low. I just, yeah. it's, it's, you know, I think as long as, I think as long as you've got Buffett and Munger that are still actively involved in making capital allocation decisions, you're, you're not, you're not going to see a dividend. I just, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Cause here's, here's the bottom line. I think if there's one thing that Warren Buffett has taught us, it's, it's the power of being mentally flexible. You know, this yeah. is somebody who's, who, uh, you know, Apple's been one of the company's most successful investments. And this is somebody who who didn't invest in in the in tech stocks when they were you know the the hot item twenty years ago because he didn't understood them, but over time as he's learned more and th and the conditions have changed, his opinions and his views have changed right based on the on the facts on the ground. So I I, I don't think you can ever say never, but I just I still don't think that's that's the, that's it's going to change. Uh, here's here's a, some observations that I have just real quickly. Um, I, something that I looked at or maybe a month or so ago. Over the past ten years, and it's you know you can easy it's easy to be arbitrary with numbers, but uh, over the past ten it's changed a little bit over the past month. Uh, but over the past ten years, uh, Berkshire Hathaway stock uh, has generated about 161 percent in in gains. The S and P 500s generated 266 percent in total returns. At one point, uh, maybe a month or so ago, two months ago at this point, the S and P 500 had lapped Berkshire had had generated double the returns over the past decade, right? But here's the yeah. thing. Buffett's told us that generally in, in strong bull markets, but uh, Berkshire at this stage of its existence is not necessarily going to outperform the market. But in downturns, it should prove its value, right? We haven't completely seen that. We've seen it some as it started to come back um, over the past you know couple months. But, um, you know, it's it's just, it's really interesting how the business has changed. But Again, Munger and 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 Buffett are very much process over over outcomes, and and that remains that remains the case. So, you know, they they love banks. You know, banks yeah. the the mega banks have really really weighed on the on the on the returns for the business. There's no doubt about that in terms of the portfolio. 
Yeah, I mean, they've, they've certainly, I mean, Wells Fargo is not doing anybody any favors right now. So hopefully we see things kind of turn, turn around there. And, and, and I mean, I understand, I understand why, you know, investors would, would believe that would be the case. I mean, you don't own that sort of a market position in, in the mortgage market and just disappear over the, overnight. You can't. Um, but it, it was an interesting point you made there. And, and I agree with it in that, like, a lot of, a lot of the value in Berkshire is, can be seen in tougher times where maybe it's a bit more of a defensive holding, or at least that's been the perception, right? It, it withstands tougher, tougher times a little bit better. But now, you know, we are seeing, at least with this pandemic, um, a, a, you know, we're seeing a change in the way business is done, right? We're seeing the development of this digital economy. We're seeing, seeing businesses being, the, the relevancy being pulled forward Really, frankly, a couple of years, like Satya Nadella said it, whether it's medicine or document agreement um, or payments, I mean, we're seeing just new ways of doing things that are all very tech-related. And I, I wonder, Dan, do you feel like that starts to work against Berkshire Hathaway at some point? I mean, I understand the, 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 the wonderful success he had with the investment in Apple. Let's all also acknowledge the fact that Apple's not really that difficult of a business to understand. And, and in, as, as far as tech investments go, I'd say it's a pretty green circle type business. I, it, does, does this company feel like one that needs to be on investors' radars, though, going forward, given this move toward this, this digital economy that we're witnessing today? I do, but I don't think it's a player in that, in that tech innovation. I mean, I think that it's, as far as tech is concerned, uh, Buffett and Munger are going to be passive investors. They're not going to have. They're, they're not going to add value. They're not going to have insights. They're not going to be contributing to the business models that you know major technology companies are doing. That's not their area of expertise. They would never pretend that it was. Um, they found a great partner in Apple. I think they trust Tim Cook implicitly. Uh, you know, they've tried to. They've taken stabs at tech elsewhere. With mixed results, IBM obviously haven't been a pretty bad uh, outcome, and yet you know I think that I think there's some recognition that tech is an important player. I think that motivates the Apple position, you know. But but I'll also just point out. I mean, I first became a Berkshire shareholder in 1999, uh, and it was sucking wind back then. <laughs> it was not doing well, and all these dot com companies were doing great. And the future was tech. And everybody was absolutely correct at that time that the internet was the future and that that was where returns were gonna come from. The question was of the companies that were available to invest in at that time, which ones panned out well? And during the dot-com boom, a whole bunch of, for a whole bunch of companies, the answer was no. And so when those companies started going down, they dragged the NASDAQ down, they dragged most of the stock market down Berkshire performed really well. Um, we've seen the same sort of thing happening. There's been a big emphasis in growth investing. Uh, value investing's underperformed for years now. And I think Berkshire is gonna be a value investment. It's always gonna be a value investment. No matter, you know, once Buffett's gone, his successor is gonna be a value investor. And so, yeah, if, if you're convinced that growth investing, you know, things are different, it's not cyclical, it's gonna be growth investing from here on out, then yeah, Berkshire's not your pick. Um, but if you think that there's a cyclical element to this where yes, growth comes into style and then somebody decides, oh, these stocks are overpriced, value comes back into style, that's where I think you're gonna get Berkshire to outperform. And that's why I think it's still worth investors paying attention to it, even though like Jason said, 
it hasn't done very well lately. In fact, it's done really poorly compared to even the S&P 500, let alone some of those high growth tech stocks that you're talking about. Do, you, do either of you have any concern? And, and, and we'll wrap this up here and move on to Mark Hill, but, but I just wanted to throw this out to both of you because I noticed the, the company took a, a pretty sizey write down on its per, uh, precision cast parts acquisition this quarter. I mean, that was a, a deal. I think they paid somewhere $32 billion for, yeah, the, for yeah. the deal. They took about and, a and third I think they of took it. A, yeah, about a third of it. You know, write down about $10 billion. Um, and, and that, you know, arguably would be a business that would be right up, right up Buffett's alley in, in understanding. Um, again, I mean, I think it goes obviously in a very, very unique time here globally speaking but but is that something that concerns either one of you at all you know i don't i'll i i do not i don't think it necessarily concerns me every i mean every deal is not going to go you know swimmingly right um but a lot a lot of us i think a lot of us were relatively bullish on the precision cast parts investment but just so but looking objectively at, at berkshire today and thinking about the portfolio thinking about its biggest successes in terms of its equity investments it's really been in brands right i don't i don't really view apple anymore as a, as a, as a tech it's, it's yeah sure it's a tech company but it's a massive consumer brand right and that's a huge draw the coca cola is is the same thing you, i think you could even say american express is the same thing right so i mean if i so if i'm looking at apple or excuse me if i'm looking at berkshire today I mean, actually, it's kind of it's it's actually floated onto my buy list. I sold probably four or five years ago, but now it's back on my buy list because it looks like a value. A massive portion of what it holds is is banks, and I think most banks are probably undervalued. It's a ba- it's not a great environment for banks, but I still think they're undervalued. So I, I tend to agree with 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 Dan's take, and I'm I'm not particularly concerned. Yeah, um, and, and I'll just throw in here too. You know, I, I understand the write down. I think it's appropriate given the response in the industry. There's still huge uncertainty as far as where commercial aviation goes from here. But I am heartened at least a little bit by the fact that we've seen some of Precision Cast Parts publicly traded companies, they've bounced back. I mean, a company like Transdime Group, uh, ticker TDG, um, you know, well off its lows, not near where it was before the pandemic hit. Uh, but, you know, you're starting to get some good news. It looks like the 737 MAX might eventually fly. Uh, you know, it, get you know boeing is starting to see at least some strength come up there's still lots of you know not sure what things are going to look like but i think in the, you know buffett's not worried about taking a write down or about one year's worth of results he just wants to make sure that over the long run these airplane manufacturers need components and precisions in a good place to keep delivering them as long as there's demand for the aircraft I love how Buffett Munger, I mean, what Buffett's like 88, Munger's like 92 or something like that. And we still talk about like the long term with these guys. Like we're, we're thinking like 20 years down the line. And I mean, I just, I love it. That, that, that mentality, um, that mentality, let's just hope it never fades. Um, okay, well, let's. we're going to move from Berkshire Hathaway to what a lot of us like to call our baby Berkshire Hathaway, another company that uh, probably a lot of fools are very familiar with, probably a lot of listeners own or have this stock on their radar, uh, Markel Insurance, which is a very similar business to Berkshire Hathaway um, in a number of ways, a much smaller business, um, Markel being in the specialty insurance. Uh, so typically writing insurance for things that 
other people just don't have the expertise to write. And, and that could be everything from uh, horseback camps to speedboats uh, and everywhere in between. I mean, yes, those things have to be insured too. Uh, Markel, I mean, another, I mean, a very similar quarter to, to Berkshire's. Um, you know, they, they note the challenged business environment. And, and Jason, you know, the one thing that they talked about on the call which I thought was pretty interesting is you know, they, they, they're talking more about how this, this, the insurance market, we've entered a hard, what they call the hard market for most insurance and reinsurance lines. And you know, ultimately talking about how they're, they're really focusing on, on writing good business premiums are going up and they're not just, they're not just taking, you know, any business they can get. But, but I wonder with Markel, um, what stood out to you in this quarter, both good and bad? So I think I think the first thing, just some background for for folks to know. Uh, so combined ratio, anything above a hundred percent, means they lost money on their on their on their premium writing on their on their underwriting, and below a hundred percent's good, meaning they they made money um, on their underwriting. So you go back to the last quarter, the first quarter, I think the the combined ratio was like one hundred eighteen percent. So I was it was almost one hundred twenty percent. So right, something so, abnormal, yeah, yeah, <laughs> massive. And again, it was a single. It was think three. They said three hundred twenty five million in, in in underwriting losses directly related to COVID nineteen. So good example of you know coming out of of uh, the Berkshire annual meeting back in I guess it was May when you know some concerns about big insurers and potential. Uh, massive underwriting losses from COVID. So we saw we saw that with Markel last quarter, and then the second quarter, the combined ratio fell to 88%. Right. So that was you know that was we see some some normalization as as the company adapted pretty quickly. And with Markel, um, sure it has Markel Ventures, which it's aggressively growing, which is its its uh, you know its 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 acquisitions of of both stocks and and, and equities, and and its its per, its wholly owned uh, acquisitions of subsidiaries to kind of build the Berkshire idea of right of this conglomerate that has these other other operating uh, businesses. But right now, insurance is just it's still it's it's the lion's share. And I think you know we we're talking about this transition into a hard. A hard market for people that uh, just that's just a change in the cycle of the insurance business where you see more insurers start to kind of withdraw and and the, the market the prices start to kind of go up um and i honest i think that's a great thing for markel right because they have such a great history of underwriting that it puts them in a position especially in these specialty markets where there already there already isn't a t as much competition as things like home and auto um to to really to really you know, uh, to get back to really having that great underwriting success and see that combined ratio potentially go even lower. So that kicks off even more float that it can then use to find opportunities, opportunities to invest. Uh, just as an example, there's one thing I saw from the, from the quarterly filing, I can't remember the name of the company, but they, 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 they kind of doubled down and they've acquired a, a majority stake in a building distributor, a building oh, supplies. Yeah. Sub, sub, uh, it's, they've, I think they've spent around $500 million and they own about 90% of it now. So one of the things I like about looking at these, at these uh, releases, uh, especially from, from Markel, is it kind of gives you an idea of where management's looking, where management's thinking. And I saw that. I'm like, well, you know what? They see this this trend of 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 a, of a shortage in housing, right? As as, as a major long term trend, you think about millennials trying to get into the housing market. And they see a big tailwind. They're they're willing to spend you know half a billion dollars to buy a building materials distributor. So I, I thought that was really interesting to point out. Is this is where they see the opportunity, right? So I think that was a really interesting takeaway. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it, with Markel, again, it's one of those companies where you, you try to ignore the quarter to quarter and you focus more on the year to year because we do see um, where, I mean, Markel, like any other insurer, they're going to be susceptible to, to lumps in the business. And I mean, when you look at the actual, so there are three drivers with the business, right? I mean, the insurance business that you've talked about, Markel Ventures, and then their investment portfolio. If you look at their investment portfolio, Net investment losses for the first half of 2020 were 770 million compared to a net gain of $1 billion, $1 billion last year. So basically, you know, that, that's, that's a decline of $1.8 billion just in investment losses, uh, or, well, investment gains in, in losses, which, I mean, to be clear, I mean, that I'm sure is overwhelmingly, if not all, Unrealized, right? It's not like they're buying and selling stocks like they're day trading. Um, that's a really, every day. that's a really good point, right? That that I think it's good for people to understand that uh, a few years ago there was a change in Gap, where they're required to show quarter over quarter um, unrealized. So it's just changes in the value of the the equity portfolio, right? They have to show that on their Gap results. So even though they're still holding these investments. Yeah, and that's what they call that mark to market, right? I mean, that's right. just showing you like right. quarter to quarter, this is what the market's saying. What the market's saying isn't necessarily the reality of the situation. It's just the reality at that given point in time. But and Dan, we were talking about this earlier. We've got some, we've got some, oh, what, 13Fs coming out here soon that are going to really uh, shine some light on, you know, the companies that these uh, companies are owning, right? The, the, the companies that Markel and, and Berkshire are investing in. I mean, I'd be fascinated to see um, if they've added any or if they've added too many positions. It was always fun for me to look at the differences between Berkshire and Mark, uh, Markel's holdings because Markel and Tom Gaynor, you could see there was a little bit more of a a propensity to bring tech into that portfolio. Things like Amazon and Alphabet and Facebook and whatnot. Um not necessarily the same same dynamic with Berkshire Hathaway, although they're getting better. But but again, I mean, going back to that driver in in, in the investment portfolio, I mean that that is still one of the top three drivers of, of the business. And so, even though those aren't really permanent losses, nor are they permanent gains, it's it's not something we can ignore, is it? No, you, I mean you can't ignore it as much as Buffett would tell you to. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Buffett was definitely not a big fan of the uh, change in accounting practice, even though. It, it seriously worked in Berkshire's favor in the second quarter uh, because you know we had the big bounce and so all these stock prices came back up. It created a huge headline net income number for Berkshire for the quarter, uh, but they're still down for the first half of 2020 significantly, even though the market more than the overall market has been. And it's exactly because of sort of that value proposition that these that you know, both Markel and Berkshire have kind of embraced, like you say, Markel not quite to the same extent or with at least a nod towards innovation. Um, but, you know, you just sort of have to kind of go with it and say, okay, yeah, if your gap accounting records are going to force you to take these mark-to-market things and you're going to get volatility in the earnings that you didn't have when you were just able to kind of carry it book value, and call it good from there. So, you know, it's something that you take into account. And then depending on your propensity, if you're a long-term investor, you just turn right around and ignore it most of the time because you know it's just three months worth of stuff and what went down in the first quarter went up in the second quarter. It evens out in the long run and hopefully goes up and then you can kind of make your judgments from there. Yeah, and in most cases, they can probably both Markel and, and Berkshire's 
teams there can look at their portfolios and feel good knowing quarter in and quarter out. They, generally speaking, I think feel really good about the state of the businesses that they own. Stock price notwithstanding, macroeconomic conditions notwithstanding, they like the businesses. And But one thing I will point out, we all know that Berkshire sold off their, avi- their airline holding. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, that was made very clear. Yep. Um, but I look, but one analysis I, I looked at of the financial shows suggests that there were more sales in the investment portfolio that aren't accounted for by those airline sales. And so, like you said, you know, we've got the 13Fs due August 15th. Uh, that means, you know, uh, Friday's the 14th. So that's probably when they'll come out. And uh, it'll be interesting to see my own personal pick. My guess is he's going to have cut more of Wells Fargo. It's below 10%, so he won't have had to report it along the way. Uh, but to me, the choice of a preference in Bank of America, we've seen the Bank of America purchases over the past several weeks and months. Um, I think that that is, he's finally starting to say, okay, I'm not gonna invest in the entire industry. I'm gonna pick a favorite. And it may well be Bank of America's that favorite if we see on Friday that Wells Fargo has shrunk again, and it's been on the decline. It's well below 10% at this point already. If we see further declines from there, I think it's is a clear statement of this is the player that I like. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree. Matt and I talk a lot about that. It's really interesting to think about how these these banks have, have you know they've traded places, right? I mean, it was I don't know, it was maybe seven years ago. Like we would talk about Bank of America, like they would just wake up and step in poo every day. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just you could just mark it like it was like the sun coming up and and now i mean it really does feel like wells fargo has taken that title and bank of america just can do no wrong and this is really turning out to be buffett's favorite bank apparently because that's where all of his money is going <laughs> well i think now's i think now's a good time to do it right in the middle of of a major economic downturn it's from a from a from a financial perspective it's probably creating operating losses and investing losses that berkshire can use to offset those gains that it still has in its Wells portfolio. So the tax implications are easier to swallow right now and start transitioning into, into better, better choices. Portfolio management. I like it. I like it a lot. Well, speaking of management, you know, portfolio management, financial management, looking at things beyond just our stock driven world. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit today, Dana. You, you, we had a question on Twitter that came in the other day that I thought we want to talk a little bit about interest rates, about how low interest rate, uh, rates are today. I mean, there's all this talk about negative rates, how investors can deal with this type of an environment with when they have money to put away. You know, where's what are some ideal vehicles to use? We got a question here from Scott Gasavi on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Energy Is My Name, um, and and Scott tagged this. Actually, for Market Foolery, so I'm stealing it from Market Foolery. We're we're taking this question on today's show because really, this is right up your alley, Dan. So I want to I want to hear what you have to say here, and and of course, if Jason has any thoughts too. But here's the question: uh, Scott asks, he says, I'm, "I'm looking to invest my market gains in bonds for a short term. Are bond ETFs like BND, the ticker symbol BND, a good idea for a real?" A retail investor like me, what other options do I have to earn decent returns on short-term investment uh, time frame, one to two years? Thanks in advance. And you know, Dan, this is a question we get often um, from investors: whether it's one to two months or one to two years. 
folks trying to look uh, for a way to maximize yield for money that they don't want to put in the market. And it just kind of feels like we're coming back to there's not really a very good answer, but maybe you've got a good one for us today. Well, it's it's it, you have to manage your expectations and you have to understand the risks involved. And so with a short-term investment like this, I like to match up short-term need with short-term nature of the investment. And so in this case, answering Scott's question directly, no, I do not feel like um, the, uh, the, the aggregate bond ETF BND matches up to that one to two year timeframe that you're talking about. And that's because it's a general bond index. It's got some short-term bonds in it, but it's got a lot of intermediate term, five to 10 year bonds. It's got some long-term bonds, 10, 20, 30 year bonds in there. The problem that folks like Scott have, and it's a difficult one to overcome, is that it's these long-term bond ETFs that have done the best. And it's because, as crazy as it sounds, when you have a long-term bond, a 30-year bond that goes from 2% down to 1.5%, that translates into a huge capital gain on a bond ETF. We're talking 10, 20, 30% returns on some of these longer term bond ETFs. And so people say, hey, I wanna get out of the stock market. I wanna reduce my risk. I want 20, 30% returns. <laughs> Why don't I get this bond ETF? And the answer is that as quickly as those bond ETFs have gone up in the falling interest rate environment, they can go down 10%, 20%, 30%, in a rising interest rate market. And so what you're doing when you invest in a long-term bond ETF as a short-term trader, and yes, I'm calling one year or two years short-term for these purposes, <laughs> is you're making a bet that interest rates are gonna stay low and they're gonna keep going down. Now, I'm not gonna tell you that's a bad bet. There's a lot of macroeconomic reasons to think that that's the case. And frankly, JMO, I've been warning people about this bond ETF risk for years. And I've been dead wrong from a trading perspective because the rates keep going down. When the ETF, you know, when the when the treasury bonds were at 3%, we were like, how much they can't go any lower than this. <laughs> then they go to 2%. And it's like, well, they can't get any lower than this. And now, you know, now they're, you know, 10 years at like half a percent. And, you know, in the past we were sort of like, well, at least there's one thing we know. It can't go below zero. <laughs> And now well, Europe is like, yeah, uh, no, no, we're, we're going to play that game. And so now you've got, you know, the U.S. is just about the last major economic nation in the world that has positive interest rates. Look, go look in Europe. There's negatives all over the place. Japan's right about zero. Uh, so, yeah, it's crazy. But I mean, to answer Scott's question, if you want short term money, then you just have to resign yourself to the fact that you're not going to get very good interest rates. The place to go right now, oddly enough, is banks. Usually online banks have the best CD rates. You can get a one-year CD, a two-year CD. Yeah, they're going to pay you like 1%. And it's going to hurt. But if that's money that you need next year, it's money you need two years from now, that, you know, you put the money in, you know you're gonna get that 1%, you know that's what it's gonna be. And from a portfolio standpoint, that's what, that's what I'm gonna tell you to do because it matches up with what your needs are. 
Jason, do you have a do you have a philosophy or a mindset that you t- typically follow when it comes to something like this? I mean, it's a problem we've been dealing with for a while, so I suspect you've had to address it at least once or twice. So this is where Firebrand Jason comes out. Uh, <laughs> this this whole question smacks of market timing to me. I don't I don't know your individual situation or what's happening, but I've seen we've seen we've all seen a market that's come roaring back, right? This year we've seen the fastest thirty percent drop in history. We've seen the fastest we've seen I think the worst month and the best month, right? This year, and the market seems incredibly dislocated. Um, right. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And this just really smack. This doesn't sound like somebody that's 63, that's planning to retire in two years that wants to set aside cash. So here's, <laughs> so here's, so pl- I hope I'm not insulting anybody, but I probably am, but I do that. Um, that's okay. here's, here's, here's how I think about it. You know, I'm four. So I'm 43, right? So I have you know 20 years that I'm saving for retirement. I have 15 years before my son goes off to college. So, so here's how I think about investing. And here's the process that I have to keep me from making dumb decisions, right? And avoid un, to, to avoid those unforced errors, right? Because I think that's where retail investors, just like amateur athletes, make the most mistakes is doing dumb things that we choose to do, right? So here's, here's my process, right? So I think about, do I... Do I have any any assets tied up in something that could cause you know fundamental harm to me financially over the next two years? In other words, do I have enough cash set aside to pay the bills if I lose my job or if my yeah. wife loses her job or if we have uh, an illness or something like that? So so number one, I have that margin of safety that has nothing to do with my investing portfolio, right? And then I look at my portfolio itself and I think. Do I have the ability to react quickly to market opportunity, right? So having cash set aside. So if we do see another 10%, 20%, 30% drop, do I have some, there's the term dry powder that gets tossed around, but if, do I have some capacity to be able to act as a buyer to take advantage of those opportunities? And, and I do, I tend to aim to have about in, in a normal environment, about 5% of my portfolio in cash, because we see a 10% drop every few years, right? Every year or two. We see a 20% drop about once a decade. I think we've seen a 30% drop over the past 70 years. I think we've seen like maybe five of them, five or six. So we, we, so you, we don't see them very often, right? So you pull a bunch of cash out and you're sitting on cash that doesn't generate return. You buy bonds that don't generate much return or potentially you buy a bond fund that could actually lose you money. Um, you're working against yourself, right? So think about your, what are your goals, right? Don't think about what is the market going to do in the next two years? What are your goals? And then build a strategy based around your goals and then do some things to hedge yourself from making mistakes, like keeping a little bit of cash so that you can buy when there's a market crash and not try to sell some stuff that you own on the way down and then wait for the bottom to buy back in. And then you end up missing I mean, imagine being somebody that, that sold in, in, in late March, right? Because the market was falling and you knew things were going to get worse. And then here we are today and the market's uh, you know, almost back to where it was. And you've been sitting on half your, ca- your portfolio in cash while the market's come roaring back. It's really, it's hard as hell to get back in right now when you know the market's going to just fall again, right? It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Uh, you, you could have said that any time from 2010 up until February 21st. Of, of this year that the market was going to crash and the market went up f- what 400% in total returns. I mean, think about your goals and not what you think the market's going to do. Build a process and you'll avoid making mistakes. Don't get caught up in bond yields and that kind of stuff because 
it's 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 not what matters, right? It's it, and it makes you and it, you and it leads to making mistakes. I'm gonna stop. I just well, have to stop. I mean, I think you make a good point though. Like, I I do feel like we, you know, I've I've always say like investing is as easy or as difficult as you want to make it, right? And I feel like when we start going down these rabbit holes, this is where we can make it really really difficult. Not only just the mechanics of it, but the emotions. That, that are involved as well. And the ups and the downs and getting in and out, like you, all of a sudden you get a couple of things wrong and you wonder why you're even trying to do this in the first place. And you just resign yourself to giving up. And I mean, I, I can certainly understand when people get frustrated, but again, I think that just really goes back to why, you know, we invest the way we invest because frankly it works. It just, or, you get, or even, you get, even worse, you get a couple of things right, right? You, well, you, call yeah. it, you call a top and sell and then you think you're good and you were just lucky one time and then you spend the next <laughs> 10 yeah. years underperforming because you thought you had some skill that you never, you didn't really have. You got to pay the piper one way or the other, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, in, in line with what we were talking about there from Scott, I'd like to wrap this conversation up maybe with it, not necessarily a negative rates and saving and dry powder type of question, but just generally speaking, you know, in times like these, and I mean, Jason, you made some good points there and you saw the fastest trip to bear market territory ever followed by really, it had to be the fastest recovery ever. And I'm certain nobody predicted it. Um, it's been a crazy year. It looks like the rest of the year is going to be challenging in a best case scenario. As an investor, and, and Dan, I'll just start with you. As an investor, what's one thing, a tip, a suggestion, something you put into practice to help you cope with these types of volatile, uncertain, headline-driven times? What's something you do that you feel like our listeners uh, might want to consider putting into practice? I think that what I would urge everyone out there to do is to remember what this year has felt like. Because we had a 10-year stretch where, you know, there were some pullbacks along the way every once in a while, but there wasn't any serious bear market. There weren't like any sort of major periods of uncertainty about what was going to happen. We had a, a bull market that moved almost straight up. And so these discussions about, okay, well, what's your risk tolerance? They, they were all theoretical. You know, they were all in your head because you'd never gone through it. Well, now you've gone through it. And so in, from now on, you'll be able to say, yeah, when I answered that questionnaire, I said I would be able to handle a 20% drop just fine. Turns out when I actually got the 20% drop, I sold everything. I panicked. <laughs> I did the worst thing possible. Now you know the answer. Now you know what you need to work on. If it turns out that you had the discipline to stay the course, maybe like Jason said, even maybe add when stocks were really low priced, then that's great. That means that you're on track and you have the ability then in the future, you're probably beating yourself up. You're saying, oh, I should have bought more. I should have done more. And it's like, don't beat yourself up for it, but don't forget it either. Make a note of it and remember it so that the next time when the next thing happens that causes the market to hiccup, go down, you'll be like, oh, here it is. I was thinking, I want this to happen. Back in 2020, I was looking forward to the next time. This is the next time, let's do it. And if you can keep that perspective, then it keeps the emotions from taking hold of you and it gives you a chance to really kind of refine your investing and make yourself a better long-term investor that you, know, you just keep learning. We all keep learning and it's been a great, though painful, learning experience. I love it. I love it. That's great stuff there. Jason, how about you? Here's what I do. So 
and I think it's really helpful. So if, if this is kind of tied to my, my, my long diatribe from a minute ago, um, <laughs> I, I look at my portfolio and I, and I think about my investments, right? And this is, this is not my savings. This is not emergency money. This is not the operating money that my wife and I earn that pays our bills. This is truly investments. And I look at it and I say, if this was worth 30% less in, in six months from now, if this was worth 30% less, how would this affect my ability to meet my financial needs in the next five years? And right now, the answer to that is no. no it won't, right? There's no impact, right? Now, for other folks, if you, if you look at your portfolio and if it were to lose 30% of its value in the next six months, if that would meaningfully impact your ability to meet your financial needs, you own too much stocks, right? You, you need to have that conversation about finding appropriate investments based on your timeline, right? And that might mean buying some bonds, build a ladder where you have bonds that are going to mature when you need to sell them. So you're not fighting upstream against change of interest rates by owning a bond fund, right? So number one, I do that. Number two, I have some rules that help me deal with that volatility. So I, I try to have about 5% of cash in my portfolio. The market falls 10% over a short period of time. The S&P 500 from, the, from a near-term top to a near-term bottom. I just take half that money and I buy something, right? I buy great companies that have fallen more just because just because they've fallen, right? Not because the business has struggled. Now, the, if we see a 20% drop, I, I invest half of what's left. If we see, see a 30% drop, I blow it all out. I, I spend every penny that I have set aside in cash. Now, this is on top of my regular 401k contributions and regular monthly, quarterly investing that I automatically do. So by having those rules, it keeps me from thinking, well, I need to sell. I need to try and this, this feels a little top heavy. You know, it, it helps make it easier to avoid those, those, those unforced errors. So those are the two things that I would, that I would say people should consider doing. Yeah, I like I like all that stuff, you know. And in in one thing, I'll just throw in there. Sometimes I, you know, I, I talk with people and they get nervous. They they I don't know if they're losing sleep at night, but they're gen they're genuinely nervous about this portfolio of companies that it's worth less than it was the day before or a year ago. Um, whenever I speak with people who are getting to that point and they're they know they're doing the right thing, but they're nervous, um, I, I tell them to do one of two things: either either continue investing and just invest in, you know, an S&P index fund and keep that going so that you feel like you're getting that nice, broad, diverse exposure without having to pin all of your money onto one particular stock that may or may not succeed. Um, and, and another thing that also you can do, and, and this is something that my daughters do, we, we got them into doing this when they started investing, was every time they buy a stock, it has to be something new. Okay, so once they've bought Starbucks, they can't go back and buy it again. It's got to be something else. And the basic idea is there, I want them to build out a diversified portfolio. Now, diversified is going to be different for everybody, and it's ultimately understanding how old are you, what are your goals, yada, yada, yada. But if you're looking to build a portfolio of 20 stocks, well, you know, I mean, you need to get to 21st. And, you know, a lot of people want to buy stuff on the dip or whatnot and take advantage of adding to a position. But I, I've always felt like diversification, you know, Warren Buffett is kind of right. It's, it's for people that don't know what they're doing. And I don't mean that to come across the wrong way, but it just really is. I think it's good for all of us because there's a, there's a level of, of ignorance among all of us. Okay, folks, let's just be very clear. <laughs> we don't know everything and, and you certainly can't, uh, you know, predict the market the market's uh, psychology at any given point, but I feel like always kind of going back towards diversification can never be a bad thing. So hopefully those are some tips that will help our listeners cope during this 
difficult, but it seems like it's improving, Ton. It seems like it's improving. Dan, Jason, guys, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedules today to fill in for Matt Frankel. And, and let me say, not only fill in, but I'm going to have to craft an email for Matt here once we get done taping. Because now we've got we've got some Monday job concerns, some job security <laughs> concerns that I think I'm going to have to talk with Matt about. You know, let me open this, let me open the the, the topic up with him. But, but you know, uh, we'll need we'll need to get back together here later on in the week and and see about uh, maybe getting together and doing this again because a lot of fun. I feel like I just might have lost a drinking buddy. <laughs> <laughs> it was great to be on, Jamal. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. Well, we'll see you. Somewhere out there on the air very soon again, I'm sure. But for now, that's going to do it for us, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. You can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. A big thanks, as always, to Mr. Tim Sparks for juggling all of this, mixing this show and making it sound so good for us every day. For Jason Hall, that's right. For Jason Hall and Dan Kaplinger, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.